0: Well, this morning, we're going to finish up 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And uh, I'm aware that this is a a really uh, hard passage. I I told you last week that 1 Corinthians 14 is probably some of the most difficult uh, scriptures in the New Testament. And uh, on one part, you have to deal with tongues and prophecy and interpretation of tongues and continued revelation and all of that. And then this morning, you also have... uh, some issues around gender. And I know we live in a culture uh, that might be hostile to some of the things of the Lord. And so I hope you've been praying for your pastor this week and uh, I've been praying for my heart and yours, but I wanna draw your attention to our confession. It says that all things in scripture are not equally plain or clear unto all, yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly set forth And open in some place or scripture or another, that not only the learned but the unlearned induce use of the ordinary means may attain a sufficient understanding of them. And that's my prayer this morning. We may not agree on uh, the interpretation uh, of a difficult passage, but I do want to remind you that we do have unity uh, around the essentials and we're asking God's grace uh, upon us secondarily you've probably noticed that when i read the new testament and there are references to brothers i will often read brothers and sisters into the text and the reason we do that is because uh one our bibles tell us that that when paul used brothers he was not just talking to men he was talking to a mixed gender congregation and brothers uh, meant truly brothers and sisters here and so that's the way that that I've read the scriptures to you publicly, and that's how I'm going to read it this morning. First Corinthians uh, chapter 14, verses 26 or 40. What then, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three and each in turn. And then let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak. And then let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first person be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission. As the law also says, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And then Paul's talking to the collective again. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he must acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not to be recognized. So then, my brothers and sisters, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Father, um, we need you right now. We deeply need you to make meaning of the text. We also need you, per Jesus's own teachings, to allow the cares of the world not to distract us. We pray against the whole uh, Satan, Lord, who will seek to take the word out of our hearts before it takes root. Uh, Listening requires the active engagement of the Holy Spirit. And so does preaching. And so, Father, I pray for uh, those listening. I pray for myself preaching that our Holy Spirit, your spirit, would uh, give meaning and understanding and worship and also obedience. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So my first car was a 1991 Toyota Camry station wagon. And as you can imagine, it was a hand-me-down It was a car given to me by my parents and they had driven it to and from Brookhaven. I don't know how many years, but when I got it, it had 200,000 miles on it. And uh, when my dad gave it to me, he says, hey, I need to tell you some important things about this car. First, it's important that you check the oil a few times a week. It's important that you keep uh, an extra quart of oil in the back. (laughs) If you do not, the engine will lock up because it leaks oil and we're not spending this amount of money on that car to get it fixed. It's important that you change the oil every 3,000 miles. And when you change your oil, do not forget to change the oil filter and also rotate your tires. And you need to keep your eyes open for the brake pads. If you hear a squeaking high-pitched noise when you drive and brake, then it means your uh, brake pads are at the end of their life cycle. It's important. This is your car. You need to know this. Uh, And then my dad did um, what good fathers will do. He didn't just tell me it was important. He showed me how to do it. He showed me how to check my oil and not forget to put the oil cap back on. He showed me how to change the oil filter and to get the right piece of tool to get it off. He showed me how to rotate the tires. He showed us how to change our own brake pads. And honest truth, there were so many of my friends in our neighborhood driving at the same time that our driveway was like a mechanic shop because my dad had all the tools and so all of my friends were pulling our driveway and we changed brakes and oil together but it's that thing that that he did this is important and now let me show you how to do it that's a helpful way to think about first corinthians chapter 14 paul just told us that that worship gathering with god's people is important and in our section this morning, he's going to emphasize one more reason it's important, but then he's going to switch gears and actually show us how to do it. And in showing us how to do it, he's going to say, hey, do not do this. That, that's wrong. But this right here is right. And if you do this right, then the purposes, this good, important purpose of worship, it will come to bear upon your lives And so that's what I want us to think about this morning. I want us to look at one other reason corporate worship is important. And then we're going to pivot and look at what Paul says to structure their worship the right way. And it's going to involve putting some things off and doing some things right. All right? We good? Here's the first thing I want to tell you, that God's radical commitment to you is expressed best in corporate worship. God's radical commitment to you is expressed in corporate worship. Now, just track with me. When you read the Bible, you discover that God is, un, he, he is relentless in both redeeming his people and once he saves you and reaches you with the gospel of Jesus, he is also relentless in making us holy. In other words, there is not one man, woman, or child that he will save that will be unsaved, and there is not one man, woman, or child that he saves that he will leave unholy. That he is so radically committed to reaching and then maturing the saints that he is relentless in doing this. And you see it all over the scriptures. You see it with David who sleeps with Bathsheba, but at the end of his life, he will not touch the woman. You see it with Paul who persecutes Christians, who meets Jesus, and at the end of his life, he's ready to be poured out. You see it with the woman at the well who is thirsty and and trying to find meaning and purpose and identity in the arms of men. And then she meets King Jesus and she becomes this beautiful bride of Christ and evangelist in Samaria. God is in the business of reaching sinners and then maturing us in the faith. And so you might remember last week that we talked about worship, that one purpose of worship was that we are responding to the God who's reached us. That in the passage last week that Paul talks about prophecy and he talks about those who discern what's happening in worship, that they will fall on their faces and worship the Lord and say that truly God is among you. And so one aspect of our gathering, it is vertical. We're a, some have called it worship, that what we're doing when we gather is ascribing and agreeing that God is worthy of our praise, worthy of our entire beings. And so worship, is, it, it has a vertical component to it, but we talked about the horizontal nature of worship, where it goes out and our gathering is a blessing to other people. Now, last week, Paul talked about non-believers— That when they come into the assembly of the saints, and this assumes that Christians will be bringing people to church. And we'll be talking to their non-Christian friends and co-workers about the gospel so that our faith is not so privatized and and siloed that we don't engage the world around us. No, it assumes that as we enter into the assembly of the saints week in and week out, that we will be inviting our non-believing friends to come. And then Paul assumes that when we're there, our worship will point people to The greatest story ever written, and it's not written by a man, it's a story written by God. It's the story that is patterned after every fairy tale. It's the story of God in the flesh, who has been relentless since Genesis 3 to redeem and rescue a people for himself out of their bondage, out of their sin who will restore them, and in the end, Revelation 22, he's going to make all things new, and lion will lay next to lamb, and our weapons and guns will be beaten into plowshares, and we will die no more, and sin no more, and cry no more, because he is making all things new, and our worship needs to tell that story. Our worship needs to remind people of the goodness of God that has been pursuing them there all the days of their lives from before they were formed until they breathe their last and they are brought into the presence of the Lord. People need to see that God is on a relentless mission to lavish sinners with his goodness Therefore, our worship has a missional thrust to it. God will use what we do in here, in worship, to extend his loving hand to sinners. You know, I didn't get converted until I was out of college. But I would be lying if I didn't tell you that God was pursuing me my whole life from sermons that I heard at Anderson United Methodist Church, to sermons that I heard from Dr. Jerry Young at New Hope Baptist Church, to a season when I didn't go to church, to sermons preached in this pulpit that were sent to me on tapes by a man who was preaching during a worship service, that what God did over all of those years was to lead me to Jesus. Worship has a missional component that God is reaching non-believers through our gathering. But worship is also for the saints. It builds us up, encourages us, and instructs us. And that's what Paul says in this section. Look at the end of verse 26. Let all things be done for the building up. Look at the end of verse 31, so that all may learn and be encouraged. Now look up a few verses in verse 3, 4, 5, and 12. Paul has just said that the one who prophesies speaks for the people and their upbuilding. In verse 3, we preach and speak for their encouragement. In verse 19, he says, in the church I would rather speak five words with my mind to instruct. In other words, Paul takes those same three things, building up of the saints, encouraging the saints, teaching the saints, and he uses them again in this section. And when Whenever you see repetition in scripture, it is always so that we will pay attention. We gather in worship to learn, to be encouraged when the way gets hard and to be built up. God is relentless in saving sinners. He's radically committed to maturing the saints. And here is the million dollar question. How does he best express that and do that? We live in a day and an age of the internet and podcast that you can get entire seminaries put on your electronic devices now. In five seconds, you can listen to a sermon preached by someone a thousand miles away. Entire seminary curriculums can now be put on a thumb drive. But if you travel back with me 2,000 years Before the mass printing press, when we had Bibles galore in our homes, before electricity, before people could preach on one of these, before you can get seminary access on one of these, you have to ask the question, how did the early church reach nonbelievers? And how was the early church matured in the faith? You know how? By this. By showing up on the Lord's day, doing what we do. One of the reasons I had Brian read Psalm 73 last week was because there's a a line in it. And every time I read it, it, it just makes me treasure gather worship all the more. Psalm 73, the psalmist says, my feet had almost slipped as I had watched the wicked prosper. I was a beast towards you. I was angry and I was frustrated. But when I entered into the sanctuary of God, there you brought clarity to me. There you called my soul. There you reminded me that you're my strength and my portion forever. Now, this is kind of my way of interpreting that passage. I interpret it as this when I'm going to work and I'm watching so and so get this promotion and I'm skipped over. When I watch how certain people ball out with all their money and they can be everywhere doing all things and I'm barely making ends meet. When I watch this person post about their their marriage and where they're going, right? Like, Like in my heart, I'm getting envious and I'm wondering like, Lord, why are they always prospering? What about me? And I'm a wreck emotionally because I'm coveting and I'm angry. And guess what? I can't get out of that on my own. But let me tell you what happened when i walked into the house of god and i was with the people of god and i was under the word of god and i just sang about the goodness of god he says there and only there could i be stabilized do you see what the psalmist is saying more is going on when we gather week in and week out saints and here is what's going on we call god faithful We call him good. We call him kind. We call him compassionate. But one of the best ways he expresses that to you and to me is right here. I can tell you how many times, saints, I've blown it during the week and I'm doubting and I'm discouraged. There are times where I can't even sing the song we're singing because I'm crying in tears but I hear you singing the goodness of God to me and you build my heart up. Isn't that the beauty of gathering with God's people in worship? God expresses his goodness to us. He makes it so that we can hear it and see it and taste it and touch it and even feel it. Now, once you understand that, Then you understand the rest of the passage. Paul's view of worship is so big and he sees by faith what God is doing in it. Then he pivots and basically says, what you're doing here is getting in the way of this. And therefore, God lovingly critiques their worship. And this isn't a critique, just a critique. It's a critique because the way you're behaving in worship is not serving God's agenda to reach the lost and God's agenda to build up the saints. Now, look at the text. This is a loving critique of their worship. Notice what Paul says in verse 26. What well then, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each one of you has a hymn and another one has a lesson and another one has a revelation and another one has a tongue and another one has an interpretation that when you read this whole section, it reads as if some want to sing when they're actually supposed to be listening to someone teach. And the one who's prophesying, they don't want accountability. They they want what they say to be taken as God without anybody holding them accountable. And then the tongue speakers in the group want to speak in tongues, even though no one is there to interpret. And so what Paul is saying is like, look, y'all, that's chaotic. Now, look at look with me at verse 20. This is above the section that we're in. But remember, this is one chapter brothers and sisters. Do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Now, if he has to command that, then what he's actually saying is what you're doing is evil. And how you're acting is immature. So what in the world is he calling evil? And what is he calling immature? He's calling their conduct and worship evil. Now, I don't know about you, but I think of evil. I think of murder, adultery, lying, stealing, all those big things. I would say, no, 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 that's evil. But then what Paul says, no, brothers and sisters, I'm calling your conduct and worship evil. And that's like, what? Paul, they just going out of turn. They're doing everything you want to do. It ain't no order, but, but is it really evil? Now, why would he call it evil? It's in verse 33. God is not a God of confusion. That word confusion is also found in James chapter three. James writes, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. It is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. The word for disorder in James 3 is the same word for confusion in, in 1 Corinthians 14. Now, track with James logic. James says, look, when there is bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, If you want to make sure you're heard and your gifts are exercised at the expense of everybody else, it's selfish ambition. And where there is jealousy and selfish ambition, notice what he says, you will have disorder. But notice that the disorder and the chaos and the confusion, what's underneath it? He says it's earthly, it's unspiritual, and here's the word you underline, it's demonic. That's why it's evil. It looks harmless, but it's actually demonic. In fact, if you look at the way this section ends, notice notice the rebuke. And this is what Paul's talking to everybody. If you do not receive what I am saying as words from the Lord, he says, you are no longer recognized as a brother or sister in Christ. Why Why would he rebuke them that way? Demonic. Now, beloved, if Satan can't stop the saints from gathering, then what he will do is bring pride and confusion and competition in our gathering. And by introducing confusion and chaos in the gathering, guess what he thwarts? God's commitment to build you up and to save the lost. If Satan can't stop us from gathering to put us in the stream of God's mercy, what he will do is muddy the waters so that this stream loses its power. That's why Paul calls it evil, because it's ultimately not of God. God is not a God of disorder, God is a God of order, verse 40, and decency, verse 40, and peace, verse 33. This is a reminder that their spontaneous, free-for-all worship lacks patience, humility, accountability, and order is evil. But praise God. He doesn't just uh, critique their worship. He moves us to our last point. He offers some loving correctives for worship. Third point. Now, there are two principles that I think are important as we have a conversation around worship. First that whatever God is commanding in worship flows from his own character. Because God is not a God of confusion, our worship should not be confusing. Because God is a God of peace, our worship must make much of the peace of God that we now have through Christ Jesus. So much so that if we enter into the assembly and we are not at peace with a brother or sister, Jesus says, yo, leave your gift at the altar and go be reconciled and then come back. But where does that peace making and peace seeking come from? It comes from the heart of God who is peaceable and who is making peace with us and himself through Christ. Second, God has always been seeking worshipers and he is all he always tells worshipers how he should be worshipped from John four all the way back to Exodus four. Now there's a reason I had Zach read those two passages. In John four, Jesus is with the woman at the well. He says, true worshipers will worship me, how? In spirit and in truth. In other words, what Jesus is telling her is that, look, you want to come to God, but this God that you're you're about to meet must be met and worshiped on God's terms. Now, that goes all the way back to Exodus. The reason I had Zach read Exodus was because you get this this divine sort of warfare going on between God and Pharaoh. And remember when Moses was sent by God to Pharaoh, what was he told to say? Let my people go, right? You, You know that whole, right? But why? It says that they may serve me. Now, the word for serve Can also be translated worship. And so it was a war over worship. And what God is telling Pharaoh, my people are in bondage and they are not free to worship me where they are. Therefore, I will free them. And then Pharaoh says, no, 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 they can stay here and worship. And God says, no, 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 you can't tell me where my people ought to worship me or my people will not listen to you about how they're to worship me. I get to do that. And so what does God do? He brings them out of Egypt, and he brings them to Mount Sinai. Now I'm gonna meet, and in three days, I'm gonna come and let not any beast or any person touch the mountain lest you die. And God appears in fire and smoke and thunder and lightning. And then when they meet God, what is this God like? I'm the God that delivers you from bondage, and you will have no other gods before me, and you will not misuse my name, and you will create no graven images, and you will remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. In other words, God moves from the one who delivers them for worship to be the same God who, once they're delivered, he tells them how to worship him exclusively exclusively passionately not with the images of the other things created right and on this particular day in this particular way and when you read the rest of exodus god goes so far to say and you will come meet me in the tabernacle And by the way, I'm going to tell you what type of furniture to have in the tabernacle. I'm going to tell you what type of wood to have in the tabernacle. I'm going to tell you how many curtains you need in the tabernacle and what color the curtains need to be. I'm going to tell you how many holes you need to have at the top of the curtains in the tabernacle. Like this is God getting on the granular level, telling Israel, the God who frees you has the right to tell you how to worship him. Now, when you read this passage, that's what God's doing. He's being consistent with his character. The God who brought you out of the darkness of your sin and into the light of Jesus is now telling you how he must be worshipped. And if he is worshipped according to his own terms, you will be built up. You will be encouraged. You will be instructed you will grow you will be made more holy and so what are some correctives here first orderly worship must include the diverse elements that god himself has commanded look at verse 26 again when you come together you have a hymn you have a lesson, which looks like it's a pre-prepared a prepared lesson in advance. And because the Bible was still being written and revelation was still happening, there was also space for a revelation and, and tongues and interpretation, right? So notice that Paul never says stop doing any of that. He doesn't say stop singing. He doesn't say stop listening to lessons. He never says that. And then when you step back and look at the broader context, what was going on in chapter 11? Prayer was also a part of their worship and prophesying done by both men and women, a part of their worship. Also in chapter 11, Paul critiqued their misuse of the Lord's Supper, the sacrament. That's also a part of their worship. Now turn to the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verses 1 through 4. Listen to these words. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are also to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside something and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Now, when was that supposed to happen? On the first day of the week. Presumably, When they gather in worship, they were supposed to bring a portion of what they had earned. Now, does that list sound familiar? Praying, reading the Bible, singing, giving, having the supper, listening to a lesson. Does that kind of sound familiar? It sounds a lot like what we do week in and week out. And why do we do it? Not because I made it up, but because as far as we can tell, this is the pattern of the early church. This is how they grew. This is how God redeemed sinners and matured the saints. It's through worship, but it's through worship according to a pattern that he set out beginning in the Old Testament that culminates in the New. And we have been doing these same things for 2,000 years. Worship of God entails diverse elements that he himself says we're to do. In worship, you should see men and women leading. In worship, we give. In worship, we take the supper. In worship, we sing. In worship, we read. Why? Because God has commanded this Which moves us to our second point of this point, that orderly worship must have order and appropriate limits. Paul is not out to lay out the order, but the, the, the service should have order. And so notice he says, man or woman, if you have the gift of tongues, let two or three of you speak and no more and not at the same time take your turn he gives the same uh, command to those of the gift of prophecy man or woman let two or three prophets speak and no more and if a revelation is being made uh, to another while you you are prophesying let the first one wrap it up and be silent so that the other prophet can speak in other words what God is doing is putting order and limits in worship This is not a one-man or one-woman show where you get to dictate every single thing that happens, right? That there's order and limits and structure. It also, uh, the third thing is that orderly worship requires collaboration and accountability. Remember in, in 1 Corinthians 12, the Holy Spirit gives various gifts and he apportions to each as he wills. To some are given the gift of tongues, and to others, it is not the same gift, the interpretation of tongues. Some have the gift of prophecy, and others have the gift of discerning spirits. Do you see the collaborative nature there that Paul says, hey, you have the gift of tongues, But if the complementary gift is not available in the body, namely interpreting what was said, you don't speak tongues publicly. You pray to God on your own. So worship is to be this complement where we're complementing and covering and, and, and using the multiplicity of gifts that God has given this body together for the common good. But it also requires accountability. Notice in verses 29 through 30 that when a prophet speaks, others with the gift of discernment should weigh what was said. Look at verse 32. The spirit of prophets are subject to the prophets. Did you catch that? That, that, that prophets are bond bondservants or, or literal in submission to the other prophets who have the gift of discernment. This is not only interdependency, saints, it's also accountability. And what would the prophets have weighed the other prophets' messages against? Against Luke, where Jesus says, all that is written about me in the law of Moses and the writings and the prophets. And so somehow these prophets were to weigh what was being said. In line with the revealed goodness and beauty of Jesus. There's accountability. And I think churches suffer where there is no accountability for the exercising of our gifts. That's how you get spiritual abuse in the church. When there is no accountability. And I praise God for you. That though I'm up here preaching. I'm accountable to you. I'm accountable to our elders. I'm accountable to teach what is in accord with God's word. And accountability is good. Which moves us to our fourth thing that Paul critiques. And this is where it gets difficult. The right worship of God entails man and woman existing as equals in the body while maintaining some God-given differences. Now, look at what it says in verse, the end of verse 33. As in all the churches, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law says. All right, we got to deal with it, right? I see some of y'all women Y'all like, all right, well, what are you about to say? You know, what what are you about to do? Right. So let's just, hey, this does not mean women should not talk. All right. Now, let me show you in the Bible that this is this can't be what Paul means. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11 and look at let's look at verses four uh, of four through five. Now, look at what it says in 1 Corinthians 11, 4 through 5. Every man who prays. Now, this is in the context of worship now. 11 through 14 is worship. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Verse 5. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So stop right there. Are we in agreement That in the early church, men and women prayed in corporate worship and they both prophesied in corporate worship. Paul is not saying women don't pray and women don't prophesy. He's actually saying, men, you need to not wear your hair long so as to look like women. And women, you need to wear a covering or pin your hair up. But he never tells either gender to stop what they're doing. So we already know men and women prayed and prophesied. So we can't mean there be don't say nothing. (laughs) Now, look at verse five of chapter 14. Notice what Paul says. He says, now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. Who's the all? Well, go down two verses. Now, brothers and sisters. So Paul is actually saying, no, I want you all to prophesy, all of you. Acts chapter 2, the prophet Joel wrote that God will pour out his spirit on all flesh, on your sons and daughters, young men and old men, male servants and female servants. They will all prophesy. And so clearly Paul does not mean that women should not sing or pray Or prophesy in the context of the gathering of the saints are we good there all right secondarily women are not the only women are not the only ones told to be silent in this section right look at verse 28 if a man or woman spoke in tongues and there was no interpreter That person must be silent. All right? Look at verse 30. If there was more than one prophet, the first prophet must be silent. So the silence here, beloved, is not gender-based. It's situational. That something was going on with a group of women in this church, they were doing the most. Right now, in my opinion, that the conflict you have in first Corinthians 11 between man and woman, husband and wife, prophesying and worship. Notice it's about prayer and prophecy. I actually think this section is a continuation. It's the book to the conflict already talked about in chapter 11. Y'all with me. Here is what I think was going on. I think some women were challenging or critiquing their own husbands who were prophesying. Paul may have also thought that the weighing of prophecy was something reserved for official church leaders who would have been men. I don't think that's true because notice what Paul says, the spirit of prophets are subject to the prophets. And if women were prophesying, then it means that that they also uh, could also lean in into weighing what was said because the spirit of prophecy is there. Y'all with me? So here's my take on what's happening. I think Paul may mean that men and women can weigh prophecies. Men could weigh the prophecies of men and women. Women, on the other hand, out of honor for their husbands should not judge the prophecies of other men and more specifically their husbands and rather than publicly challenge their husbands or other men in the presence of the whole congregation what paul actually says is wives don't do that publicly Go be taught by your own husbands at home in this matter. Acting contrary to that directive, Paul says brings shame upon the woman, upon the body, but he also adds the Lord. Now, where am I getting that from? Notice what Paul says. He says that these things, I am, they are not permitted to speak. They should be in submission as the law says. And so whatever directives Paul is given, he's actually saying, I didn't invent this. That this is actually goes back to the law. Now what's hard is we don't know what passage Paul is talking about. My theory is that in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul appeals to Genesis in the conflict between man and woman around prophecy and prayer and worship. He actually says that man was created first, then woman, but man now comes from woman. And so what Paul is doing in first Corinthians 11 is showing equality and interdependency. There would be no man on the earth if he was not born of woman. However, man was created first. and what you have at the beginning of time is equality between man and woman the image of god is expressed not in masculinity and not in maleness but together man and woman together we image god who is one And inside of the Godhead, there are three persons. And inside of the Godhead, the three persons are equal, and yet they're different. The Father did not die on a cross. The second person of the Trinity did that, the Son. And so I think what Paul is actually saying is because Jesus has come, and one of the effects of the fall was discord between husband and wife. Husbands... We will skew towards abdicating responsibility. We will be passive. We will be controlling. Wives, apart from Jesus, will skew towards wanting to usurp and control. But because the second Adam, greater than the first Adam, has come and he has bound up our sin in himself and atoned for them on the cross and now his spirit is inside of us, he will, by his spirit, make men after his own image. And he will remake women after his own image. And he will restore what was lost in the fall so that man and woman can be equal in the sight of the Lord. There is no man, no female, no Jew, no Greek, no slave, nor free. We are one in Christ. He will restore that and what he will restore Brother and sister, we teammates. We're not fighting each other. There's a great commission to obey, and we cannot do this on our own. We need one another. And so in the world, what you see is chauvinism and abuse of authority and toxic masculinity. And what you also see in the world is radical feminism that hates everything male. And when you walk in the doors of the sacred community, what you should see is a repair. Where men will lead and men will lay down their lives and men will protect the bride of Christ. Men will be the first to repent and men will care and be compassionate and women will begin to trust Godly leadership again. And guess where that ought to be on front and center? In the church. It ought to be evidence of a new humanity breaking in because of the work of Jesus. That is why I think Paul says what he says here. Women, those particular women were doing the most and were working against the very thing that Jesus came to repair. Now, I'm going to close it. Beloved, this is not the most exciting passage. All right. (laughs) I get it. Biblical worship is to be Christ-centered, word-centered, elements that God has commanded and incorporates the manifold gifts of the people, has order and accountability, and it showcases the redemption and restoration of the image of God in men and women. And I know it's not that exciting, but it is good to be reminded that God is relentless in his pursuit of us. And one of the best ways he does that is right here. Every Sunday when we gather and make much of Jesus, we gather because we've been free from the bondage of sin. We pray because we have a God who hears, because we have access through Jesus. We sing because the rocks don't need to cry out. We confess our sins because to say we have none is to make God a liar. We will hear that we are forgiven each week and week out because Jesus has atoned for all of our sins. We will give of our wealth in a response to God who spared nothing to redeem us. And we will eat at his table because he longs to nourish our souls. We will sit under the word, letting his word do its work to make us strong and stable in the faith. And then one day. We'll see him face to face. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the majesty of your word. Thank you for the complexity. Thank you for the infallibility. But thank you, Lord, that you promised to build us up through it. If there be anything, Lord, that has been preached from here that is in error, I pray that your people will forget it and remember it no more. But if it is true, I pray that it would be unforgettable.